0: Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt.
1: And this is Jesse. Today on tap we have Rope, starring James Stewart, Farley Granger, and John Dahl, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. Today we're tackling film two in the cask of The Master of Suspense. And today we're going to be talking about Rope from 1948. Uh, this is kind of looking at Hitchcock's ventures from the 40s, which was an interesting decade for him. His kind of first foray into American film releasing and um, his first color film, as you, as you just said. So um, yeah, that's it's very interesting. This is kind of a unique uh, a unique film, so to speak. And it was fun to revisit it.
0: Had a nice time watching this one too. Mm-hmm. It's uh, adapted by Hume Cronin, yeah, and it has a stage play feel to the movie, mm-hmm. and so when you get that it's a limited amount of action, so the dialogue has to be really interesting, and there's some very interesting things that are brought up as the characters are talking on screen.
1: For sure, we're gonna we're gonna totally get into it, but first we need to pour ourselves our weekly drink. We're going back to the Macallan. And we're doing pretty good on this bottle so far. We did have a midweek shot, so I'll, I will say that. Yeah. But man, it's been an interesting week. We got all this new equipment, and I've already broken uh, a piece of it. Uh, <laughs> these uh, microphones are are fairly fairly hefty, and they come with these plastic mic clips, and I just totally busted one of them. And I tried to go look around town for for like a replacement, couldn't find it. So it's specifically custom to this microphone, so I had to order it. I thought it was going to get here on Friday. It'll be here next week, so I'm going. I'm going handheld for this one. So
0: <laughs> planned obsolescence with the mic stands, right? So yep. when you adjust it, it's going to break. So you have to buy another one, and they just keep fleecing you for uh, is, dollar after gosh,
1: dollar. Gosh, isn't that what a what a racket that is? Yeah. But cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. That's really good. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't. I think we've had maybe one or two scotches on the show so far, but this one's by far my favorite. I don't know if you really find scotches as, as smooth as that, you know, some of them like really hit you right away. My first scotch experience was actually in college. We went to a local pub, me and a buddy, and we'd been talking about trying scotch for months and we finally did it and we couldn't have a drink without coughing. It was fairly embarrassing and there was like these like older gentlemen there on the patio with us and they're just like, Laughing at us, newbies, like, newbies, green greenhorns that they, they can't <laughs> handle the the scotch, and we're like we're like coupling the scotch with like buffalo wings, which isn't a great combination already. So we're trying to be a little classier, but we're still college kids at the same time. So that was the first time I ever had scotch.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, an interesting taste. This one's really really smooth. I don't have a, a wide variety of scotch that I can sort of call on in the past as far sure. as how this goes. Mm-hmm. it would be more bourbon, but yeah really enjoyed this bottle and McAllen 15 is a winner for anybody out there that might be looking for a bottle. I'd say give this one a shot.
1: Excellent. Yeah. Well, let's get right to it with our flight question for the week. You know, Hitchcock being such a an innovator for film technology and film practice, uh, whether that be through story or craft, he certainly tried a lot of things for the first time and something's well, maybe something's not as well. But uh, Matt, what do you think is the most monumental technical achievement of Hitchcock's career.
0: I actually don't know if this is story or craft. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's both. Okay. With the title of master of suspense, you have to sort of figure out how you get such a, such a grand title because suspense is a tricky genre in and of itself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: No movie isn't without suspense. So to be titled as the one who's the best at it, you, man, you're championing a hill that's the essence of story, which is do you not know what's coming next? And when you then find out, that's, oh, cool, the moment. Mm-hmm. So to be the person that's done that the best is quite yeah. quite the, the quite, title, right? Quite an achievement, yeah. So for me, it's his use of something called the red herring or the MacGuffin mm-hmm. particularly. Uh, we've talked about it a little bit, So here it is short for those people that haven't heard it. You give the audience more information about what's happening than the people that are in the movie or on the screen Mm -hmm. and not being able to jump through the screen and tell them there's a bomb underneath this table that you or two are eating at creates suspense in the viewer. Now, once that's established, what you do with it is where you separate pros from amateurs. And I think his amateurism, uh, never even showed up. He just has an innate gift to do this so well. Mm -hmm. And so it's the MacGuffin, whether it's the Unica key and notorious or the rope for a little bit in this movie, Mm -hmm. actually a couple times though, Mm -hmm. huh? Yeah. Uh, or the $40,000 in psycho, um, kind of even the vertigo and vertigo to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. That's what he does really well. And it's, I'm going to give you, as an audience member...
1: Did you mention the money in Psycho? I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I'm going to give you a look at something in the story that is really important. And you're not only going to want to tell the people on the screen, hey, look out for the bomb under the table. But when we really get down to it, that's not what the story was about. Or it's minimally what (laughs) the story was about. So you take them down a path which they cannot ever... Go. Finish because you can't jump through the screen and tell the people, and yeah. then hey, at Brad, the end of the day, yeah, doesn't matter as much as it should have, but yeah. it still was been really significant.
1: I think that's probably best well done in Psycho because you yeah. have Marion Crane and this stealing of the money and her on the lamb, and is she gonna get caught, and like what's gonna happen. And then as soon as she rolls to the Bates Motel, it like turns into a totally different movie. This is now the Norman Bates show, and he's this like psychotic killer. You totally forget about the money. Like the money's so meaningless as it ends up in the trunk of the car. You know what I mean? Like You could also say like in the
0: birds, maybe mm-hmm. it's the lovebirds. Yeah. But what's cool about it is he always concludes the red herring or MacGuffin arc at the end of the film as well. Like he doesn't yeah. ever just present it and then leave it. Yeah. It's always returned to or at least revisited in some manner. For I shouldn't sure. say always, but mostly.
1: No, yeah, he's really good at that and the MacGuffin, the bomb in the room in this film is pretty substantial that we're going to be talking about today.
0: We talked about notorious last week, right? Mm-hmm. So that scene when, uh, Ingrid Bergman has the Unica key in her hand and the Unica key is important because that's the key to the wine cellar, which is where they are hiding the uranium in wine bottles. Yeah. I love that, that there's this huge dinner party going on and there's all of these formal people and all this pompum circumstance. And we pan down from the top story and that, that mansion essentially to the item that's in her hand, which is this little stupid key. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole bit on how she steals the key and what she does with it. And at the end of the day, that really didn't matter. Did it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It only was a key to get into the wine cellar and that kind of didn't, I mean, it mattered, but it also didn't totally matter either. Mm-hmm. So you're thinking, wow, wow, this is a movie about it. This key, or this forty thousand dollars, or this inner ear condition, and then you kind of forget it about it about the midway point, and then only you're reminded of it at the end.
1: So exactly, it's really
0: well done. So the the MacGuffin. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's that's really good. Um, is that story or craft? I would say more story. Okay. Um, but his use in showing up in a lot of his films is showing how expertly he was able to kind of place it and kind of bait the audience. So mine's actually probably maybe not a technical achievement. Now, he was great with opticals and, you know, dolly zooms. And we talked about that last week with Vertigo. But mine's actually going to come in the form of marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, Hitchcock was a man who was a total showman. And I'll give you two really good examples. The first being Psycho, actually. Uh, you can go look on YouTube, the trailers for Psycho and the birds. And it's it's, the, it's not a trailer of the about the movie. No. It's him. Yeah. Uh, showcasing. Here is the Bates Motel. The the the, the amount of crime that had taken... He, and he's just telling you, walking you through the set, essentially, and just kind of telling you like how horrific this experience is going to be. And the same in the birds when he's talking about the bird is an animal not to be... And he's talking about like five or six birds until Tippi Hedron busts in. And she's like, they're coming, they're coming. That's pretty cool. Those are some meta fourth-wall breaking trailers. But then to piggyback on the psycho thing, he had this whole thing where... If you weren't seated in the theater by the time the film started, you wouldn't, wouldn't be allowed to see Psycho at the beginning. And he had people placed all over the United States to like enforce this. This is something that had never really been tried before to really create the, the, the feeling of suspense and the twists of the film to thoroughly be enjoyed from start to finish. And then to me, that's a showman at work. And then it got me thinking about Hitchcock the Man, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. To me, he's the first um, uh, type of director that was able to sell content based on his name, which is remarkable because the actors he has in these films are J- James Stewart, Cary Grant, Gregory Peck, Ingrid Bergman, Grace Kelly, etc. And I think he's able to sell the film with his name above the title, Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest. And you know what you're getting in that package. Um, I tried to think of like the times and directors before that, and I don't think you were really going to see like a John Ford film because he made it, maybe because you're going because of John Wayne and, and the draw of the Western. Same with Frank Capra and Billy Wilder and a lot of these directors. You're going for the star power. To me, Hitchcock's the first star director, yeah. and it's pretty remarkable what he was able to kind of create with that and really kind of change how to sell a film, which is that's part of the game.
0: The hype machine is something that he had figured out pretty early on Mm -hmm. and he perpetuated by, you know, people wanting to know when is he going to appear in this film and that little cameo that never had anything to do with the movie, but we like to look for them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. He was really good at the marketing of his own stuff. And if I'm not mistaken with the psycho bit, wasn't there another two waiver piece, which he made the theater sign an affidavit or a contract that basically agreed to not letting anyone late into the film and this is the second piece in that also that at the premiere he had everybody sign a piece of paper that says if I have a heart attack in the viewing of psycho I won't sue I think so I
1: think so actually
0: which you know we have a version of that in the last decade-ish couple 20 years Mm -hmm. that did the same thing which was paranormal activity Mm -hmm. and I think for whatever that movie is, and I know we're going to talk about that, and we've talked about that in depth, and there's mm-hmm. there's pieces on on all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's inspired by what he did. Mm-hmm. The trailer for that film was very Psycho-like, yeah. which is, I'm not really going to show you the movie. I'm going to show you the reaction of people in the movie. Now, that's not what Psycho did, but it wasn't, here's a bunch of shots from the movie yeah. the way traditional trailers are. And then the end was the best part of that. You're probably going to miss this movie unless you contact your local movie house and mm-hmm. demand that they bring it here. Yeah, it <laughs> they'd it, already signed the contract. Yeah, it, it
1: felt it felt old school. It yeah. felt like the days of old of of kind of this this type of of theatrical showmanship, which you know, it's kind of weird. Imagine a trailer now with like, um, let, let me think of a director, maybe like David Fincher, and he's like walking you through the set of like whatever, like psychological thriller he's making like it would kind of be weird it'd be like really bizarre it would and it would kind of really kind of take you out of the mood he was able to totally get away with it because of the types of films he was making back then so that's that's my choice
0: if on the initial viewing people are having to sign this contract that proves that they won't sue the company if it's yeah and you're i guess a horror fan or a Mm -hmm. hitchcock fan you know it's the forbidden fruit yep it's why we all look at the chart the car wreck when we drive by exactly (laughs) So you're doing that in film
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah it's genius oh perfect i think well those are
1: two really good choices uh very innovative type of type of filmmaker and let's kind of get to one where he totally pulls uh all stops for you know something based purely on innovation which is a sequential uncutting film so let's dive right into it in our review breakdown of rope
2: it's a museum piece now we Really should preserve it for posterity, except it's such good crystal and I'd hate to break up the set. Out of this, David Kentley had his last drink. Uh, it should have been ginger ale or even beer. I've always thought it was uh, out of character for David to drink anything as, as corrupt as whiskey.
1: Such a snob, isn't he? Exactly. I had to do the whiskey line. I thought that was that was fairly apt for our show. Yeah. But Rope opens up with The Murder of David Kentley by Brandon and Philip, And right from the get-go, what's going to be the MacGuffin, the plot device that drives this entire film, is this body and this murder. And we see it literally. It's the After the credits roll, we hear a scream and we're right into it. Now, Matt, I don't want to get too perverse, right off the bat here, but I'm. Gonna, why not? I'm gonna jump right. Yeah, why not? It's it's ten o'clock on a Saturday. Let's do it. <laughs> and we're uh, drinking and we're drinking. Yeah, what does that say about us? <laughs> but um, you know, so they commit this act of murder, and you know, they have the gloves on, and they've choked out um David with this with, with this rope, and then everything gets very sexual and 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 not a, you know, I'm not trying to confuse you know the act of murder with like the act of sex, but the the post-murder coital of their act is don't turn the lights on phillips like leave the lights off and then you know uh, brandon lights up a cigarette and they're both like kind of like gasping for air and kind of you know what i mean like it's it was very interesting and then finally when they draw the shades and kind of see the aftermath is when we kind of get get rolling with the story bit and what they're going to do with this body like what do you think of that like
0: I like your approach on that and what you said. Mm -hmm. I really like the light and dark images in this film too. Mm -hmm. I hope that we get a chance to really get into this in the show today. The idea of light and dark in this movie and the relationship with light and dark in heaven and hell has a lot to do with some of the history and philosophy on why David Kentley was chosen. Sure. And what I find really interesting—that little bit that you just played for the on the show—yeah, right away, Brandon is debasing David. Mm-hmm. The rest of the movie, everyone that speaks of David speaks pretty highly of him. Yeah, and I yeah. just noticed that for the first time. To well, I watched this movie this morning actually. Okay, like just before I came, mm-hmm. not just but just like hours ago. Yeah, and everyone else speaks in glowing terms. Of David, except Brandon. Exactly. And you've already alluded to something that Hitchcock's playing with in a really smart and subtle way mm-hmm. and daring mm-hmm. in 1948. Yeah. The relationship between Brandon and Philip, which obviously is homosexual in this film.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Gosh, it almost feels like who hasn't Brandon tried to be with? Mm-hmm. Because we're going to meet a girl in a few minutes that he was also with earlier in the story. Mm-hmm. And this feeling of an unrequitedness. Yeah that he's just kind of well ravenous Mm -hmm. and if he wasn't able to dominate them and that is a lot of this movie is his assertion or attempts to assert his dominance over everyone else in this film as the superman Mm -hmm. or uberman and Mm -hmm. we will definitely talk about that yeah it makes me wonder gosh what happened there exactly because he hates him for a reason that's Just he basically says he's not worthy. And we don't ever get into that because everyone else says that he is.
1: Yeah. Now, I find this interesting. This was based on a play and kind of maybe why Hitchcock wanted to shoot this the way it did. Because it is very stage-like, very play-like, very theatrical in its kind of, in its delivery. It's based on this play by Patrick Hamilton and and written by Hume Hume Cronin, which is kind of a, a Hitchcock staple shadow of a doubt and, and lifeboat mm-hmm. but um this is a, a play based on the crimes of leopold and Loeb. right and for those a little unfamiliar leopold and Loeb were these kind of affluent you know uh, men that tried to create what they called the perfect crime and it was this uh, kidnapping and murder of bobby franks and uh they went through with it it was kind of all well and great but then it, the wheels kind of came off of this situation uh i can't remember which one it was but essentially ratted the other one out and it just totally blew up in their face. And this is one of those, you know, kind of first like, you know, sensationalized, you know, true crime stories, the the other kind of being the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. But, you know, this is the type of thing that um, the media loves back then and even still to this day. But they kind of took that genesis and brought that in the form of Brandon and Philip. And I, I totally see that here in their relationship.
0: As the Leopold and Loeb case unfolded, mm-hmm. what we've come to understand is those two guys had a tie to Nietzsche mm-hmm. and the idea that there are select few people that are deserving of a higher title, an elevated yeah. status. Mm-hmm. And in Nietzsche's writing, the key component that determines that, or is sort of as the narrator or the moral compass in that, is a character... That's, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but it's Zarathustra. Mm-hmm. And that is a mm-hmm. derivative of Zoroastrianism. And that predates Judaism. Yeah. That's the basis for light and dark or heaven and hell and two gods, Ingramanyu mm-hmm. and Ahira Mazda, mm-hmm. and literally the good and the bad. Now, this is important, not because Rai needs a history lesson today on you know religion, but because I think if you can assign some roles, yeah, in that philosophy, the movie takes an elevated level, oh, yeah. in viewership, oh yeah, so we have three main characters, right, Brandon, mm-hmm. Philip and Rupert, mm-hmm. Stuart Granger, and Dahl. yep, you need to figure out who is who, and here's the real crux of the issue in this or in this movie in the film mm-hmm. John Dahl as Brandon, yeah, wants to prove himself the utmost worthy of making the distinctions on who is worth being saved and who isn't. And like you said, mm-hmm. Hollywood has loved this story. Mm-hmm. From dinner to schmucks to the Last Supper, yeah. to any of we are a just holier few. So we get to determine the fates of the lesser. Mm-hmm. You get really good stories out of that. And a lot of them do happen around dinners and here we go. So like you said, we open up and it's this choking scene and David's dead, choked mm-hmm. out rope strangled yeah and then the postcoital semi-erotic state that the two find themselves in and yeah, the drinking yeah. and that he even light up a cigarette no exactly yeah so brandon is telling the audience i'm one of the lucky few mm-hmm. that gets to determine the fate of the other but the truth with brandon and i need this to be very clear to everyone that's listening mm-hmm. is what he does is in the dark And if you go back to Zoroastrianism, that ties it to um, Ahiramon, and that's the devil, for for lack of time, that's the satanic version of this. So Mm -hmm. is he the narrator, Zathrustra, Mm -hmm. or is he Angramanu? And we'll get to that later, but I'm telling you all, it's in the dark because he's the embodiment of darkness. Oh, yeah,
1: definitely. So we kind of just kind of get rolling right along and you know the, Brandon and wants to take this one step further they're they're hosting this dinner party and you know they're trying to maybe well, let's get the body out of here like no let's place it in this chest this kind of this kind of book chest is what it is and we'll kind of we'll 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 make it up we'll put the candelabras on here and we'll serve the dinner will serve the catered dinner from from the, the the death chest which is insane but talk about bomb in the room bomb under the table these whole people go the whole night for the most part until rupert later the body's in the room with them you see just kind of just hanging out there which is very fascinating uh to me and this is kind of you know playing on what you mentioned in Hitchcock's uh, or his, his technique is how well he's able to play off that suspense and the will they, won't they aspect of are they going to find this body in here and, you know, the clues to kind of lead along. And there's a great sequence later in the film where it's like it's almost going to happen. And then like at the last minute, like we, we, we close it up again. But as they're putting the body in here, we kind of get that that first kind of use of the symbol with the rope and it's kind of caught in the kind of the precipice of the of the latch and you know this is going to come come back a little later with um its use but it, to me i think you set it up really nicely with brandon this kind of i'm better than you i'm going to prove I'm better than you I'm literally showing you the clues and I have the the body in here and I'm not going to get caught which is all the more power to you, buddy, but you're, you're going to get caught. Jimmy Stewart. He's exactly. He's, he's smarter than you. He's smarter than
0: you. That's actually it. Yep. But Brandon doesn't want to admit that. Mm-hmm. And so he's going to prove <clears throat> that his sword, his sword is sharper than Stewart's by inviting him to the party. So there's just a nondescript cabal of guests yeah i shouldn't say nondescript but a a random assortment of guests that show up at the party and it's the ex uh or the current boyfriend Mm -hmm. of an ex-girlfriend and her other ex who also happens to be brandon's ex Mm -hmm. and the the, father of the deceased parents and and his aunt and then like their old headmaster at the prep school that they were at Mm -hmm. who we come to find out is quite the expert on philosophy of life and death. Mm -hmm. This is a really cool and very useful trope that Hitchcock uses with Stewart in particular. Can I go for a minute on this? I wanna bring up three films, okay? We talked about Vertigo last week. Mm -hmm. I wanna talk about uh, Rear Window and then this film. Okay, so in that that triumvirate there, Jimmy Stewart has always been able to portray, as we talked about last week, Mm The kind of folksy, ah shucksy, yeah, uh disarming, likable neighbor. Mm -hmm. He's he's just familiar, even though we don't know him. He feels familiar. Whether you're drunk or lonely, he's got some little moniker or some phrase that kind of talks you down from like, that's where everybody is in life once in a while. Don't worry about it. And it's made it's what made Jimmy Stewart Jimmy Stewart. Oh yeah. What Hitchcock does really well with him Mm -hmm. is He takes that and and the familiarity that the audience has, and he unquestionably punishes Stewart for the sins that he commits in his films and puts him in a position where his morality is always in question. And it's disarming and interesting for the viewer because when Jimmy Stewart is stalking Kim Novak, it's a terrible thing, Jesse. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's Jimmy Stewart, and there actually is kind of a reason why he's doing it. So we get Stalker and Vertigo. Mm -hmm. We get the voyeur.
1: And Rewind. And which Mm -hmm.
0: is totally creepy, but maybe he sees a murder, so we're going to buy off the morality. And his moral compass is still going to be pointed north, because it's Jimmy Stewart. He really wouldn't do anything bad. And in this, he does it a third time. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Stewart has educated Brandon on this idea of the Superman and this elevated status and who determines who stays and who goes and Brandon's going to use that against him as his lessons mm-hmm. have been indoctrinated or uh, absorbed and become Brandon's philosophy and he self elevates him to the position self elevates himself to the position of judge jury and executioner sure. and when later they have the discussion about I can't believe you actually did this. Jimmy mm-hmm. Stewart's actually punished a little bit because he's the one that incited this philosophy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that works, so that's a long setup for what I wanna say. Okay. That works really well, because Jimmy Stewart putting being put in that position of, I don't wanna say semi-villain, because that's not fair, but, and to a lesser degree in this film, but certainly not in Vertigo, and to a little bit higher level in, rear window but not quite to the position of villain in any one of those three spectral positions jimmy stewart isn't really doing the right thing and hitchcock punishing him for the lack of morality is so fascinating because we don't want to blame jimmy stewart for anything ever jesse it's jimmy stewart exactly yeah that's the guy that if i have to run to the grocery store and my kid's sick i'm gonna have him come over and watch her for a minute because he's been my neighbor since the dawn of time exactly Sugar eggs, if I met him at the mailbox in his bathrobe, it wouldn't even be weird because it's just Scotty or Rupert yeah. or, or Jeffrey. He's just so familiar. And
1: especially last week, I think yeah, he was punished very aptly for his kind of descent and his ultimate kind of seduction with um, with Madeline uh, Kim Novak. And then especially, I think in this film, especially by film's end, and it's kind of a slow kind of descent into uncovering what's going on and i think he has a conversation with philip there at the piano he's like i don't even, i don't know exactly everything that's going on here but I'm, I'm i'm gonna i'm gonna figure it out and then when he does it's almost kind of a little heartbreaking It's you know you've taken my philosophy my ideas my ways of thinking of of these you know these philosophers and these grin these writers and you've totally taken it on your head and i know i i preach that stuff but i would never become that that type of thinking
0: The other answer that I was going to give you in the flight was Mm -hmm. his indifference with two types of male protagonists. You Mm. set it up last week. Mm -hmm. It's Grant and it's Stewart. Even in North by Northwest, Cary Grant is Jimmy Stewart. Lawrence Olivier and Rebecca is basically Cary Grant's formal affect. Mm -hmm. He has the folksy, ah ah-shucksy, really likable guy next door, and he has dashing... Formal Cary Grant-like guy. Those are his two male protagonists. Rod Taylor and the Birds is Jimmy Stewart's folksy. Right? Exactly. Sean Connery and Marnie.
1: Cary Grant. Is Mm -hmm. poorly done Mm because it's
0: a bad cast and a weird film. But okay, so you're you're with me. Yeah. We are seeing one of his, and there's a lot of discussion in Hitchcock's work about his use of women. Mm Mm-hmm. Fascist ice queen—they're all blonde. What is he working through? Yada, and then mm-hmm. it's it's great for story. It's great for a lot of things. Yeah. What's not given a lot of talk is the use of men, mm-hmm. and they are too They Gregory Peck and Spellbound. Mm-hmm. God forbid is Cary Grant poorly done? Yeah, notorious. We talked about that film a lot. It's weird that that would you call it the bench player was not the second, the third post off the bench. Or yeah, something? yeah, yeah. He's yeah, <laughs> he's bench material. He's your backup forward. That movie is so many things about what Hitchcock does well. It's just not a great film for its faults and successes, but Mm -hmm. it's right. Yeah. You guys should all watch notorious. Yeah. In, in Stewart's portrayal of the detective Mm -hmm. in this movie, Mm -hmm. we get the best of Hitchcock figuring out how I can use this type or that type to be the two types of men that I understand Mm -hmm. and I can write and direct. Yeah. And that's a lot for me. that's a lot of talking for me, yeah. to say he has two protagonists that work, Yeah, the Grant-like and the Stuart-like. yeah, And this is the Stuart-like character portrayed by Jimmy Stewart. Uh, really well
2: done. It looks heavenly. I hope David gets here soon. Yes, where is David?: I haven't the faintest idea, but he's so late Mr. Kentley's getting annoyed. And you me, I'm hungry. Brandon, exactly, what is this? Uh cassone I got in Italy. No, no, I mean why are we eating off it? Oh, I I've turned the dining room into a library. Mm-hmm.
1: So this is you know, yeah, this is interesting. like like just kinda of right from the get go from his introduction, uh he's he's kind of suspicious, I just imagine, just like right right away, like, why are we eating on this thing? You know, and then we kind of get into this story, and we'll talk about that, too, of this lopping killing of the chickens and, like, the the reactions. He's just like, like, why are these guys acting so weird today? First of all, this dinner party, it seems like a total chore. Like, I would have hate to have gone to this thing. That's, yeah. I would have found any way to get out of this specific night because it's just, you know, just, yeah, whatever. But uh, let's talk about the elephant in the room right now, which is the technique Hitchcock's using to tell this story because I think it's... I can't. I. I don't think a director had really attempted to shoot a film, in a sequential singular shot sequence, quite like this before to this extent. You know, the you would go see the a theatrical stage play, and then that's where you would get it. But for Hitchcock to, without like laying dolly track and some of the innovations he had on the set here, uh, is is pretty remarkable. The way the the the, the camera kind of glides, and it's in that opening shot there where they. They want to get the champagne out of the, the fridge. It's going into two other rooms. So the camera's on a on a movable type of dolly because you can't be showing the track throughout the house. Did you see that
0: same thing that I did about the walls of the set were on wheels? So they're yeah. having to wheel the walls. Well, I
1: noticed that that the first time I noticed probably the use of that was when uh, the the maid uh, is um, kind of cleaning up the the chest of the body chest. And they're talking about no one's even touched the chicken and and she's talking to Rupert and we're backed up against that wall which prior was housing the camera so based on how the shot was taking place yeah these these walls were kind of on movable wheels and you had people in the background just kind of moving things to make it look like this small tiny space when it was really kind of a big studio. I'm not uh, trying
0: to elevate Hitchcock for the purpose of elevating him so it suits the narrative that you and I have laid out, but just consider this, okay? Mm-hmm. And you can tell me if you think this is a stretch. Okay. If those sets and those, those walls in the set are on wheels, did you, or is it out of the realm of possibility to think as the walls are being moved, the wheels might squeak? And how do you keep that quiet? Because this is a pretty quiet set, oh, yeah. except for the voices <clears throat> that are being kind of, uh, well, spoken. Exactly. I I found that to be quite masterfully done, to Mm -hmm. move that and be so quiet about it. Because it is a content—there's like 10—I think I read 10 cuts. Yeah, yeah, there is 10. Is it 10? Mm -hmm. Okay. So maybe you got lucky enough to cut or to move the set pieces during the cut, but there's a lot that you didn't. To keep that quiet enough and not bump into anything or make the noise to be distracting. And I think— that just shows the expertise and the diligence of this man. No, I think. So it bl- do you think that's a reach? No,
1: I don't think so. And I think it's it's totally ambitious. And you know, it's here's something I want to try, and you know, give them a different type of theatrical experience. And the first time I, I saw Rope, honest, honest to God, I fell asleep. Um, it had been a late night, and I, you know, I came back to it again in school. But the not cutting almost wants to. It almost drives you crazy. Like you you're so used to narrative film, especially today, like uh, there's like a cut every two two to three seconds, and yeah. it's it's very bombarding, so when it doesn't happen for up to ten ish minutes and even when it does happen, it's kind of done seamlessly by moving up to the back of a character and then going into the next reel, and the reason they couldn't go longer was film stocks you got about ten minutes mm-hmm. now you could theoretically do it all in one go. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's so well rehearsed, you know, the blocking, everyone is hitting their marks, the camera's going where it needs to be, and everything's just kind of flowing in a natural play-like fashion. And the actors on set, you know, called this, you know, they found this experiment pretty exhausting because of the rehearsal. And, you know, if you flub up at like minute eight, you got to do it all over again.
0: Stewart even sort of spoke to that. I don't think Jimmy Stewart, if we could resurrect him, would say that was his favorite (laughs) movie to make. (laughs) (laughs) He kind of alluded to the fact, like, this was an experimental piece that was a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And for everybody out there, Hitchcock storyboarded every shot before he went through and shot it. Mm -hmm. Some of the storyboarding that happens in, like, let's say, North by Northwest is... Easier to do because you have the geography of space around you. So in this space that you have, you don't have to worry about walking into X, Y, or Z. Just go be you and act, and this is the general blocking area. So that makes that easier to storyboard. Oh, yeah. These storyboard pieces are essentially an 100 square feet. Exactly. So can you imagine? And he was really very, very fine and diligent about every little piece of his film he's a perfectionist my god the storyboarding alone for this Mm -hmm. and it's an 86 minute film it's like 80
1: minutes hour and 20 minutes it's just short watch 80
0: minute movie Mm -hmm. i bet you there were probably 160 storyboard images on this yeah man arduous Mm -hmm. so experimental is fair arduously experimental and then when you're
1: playing around with a technique like this the other thing you got working for you is obviously claustrophobia because sure you kind of want to get out of this little room. You're just kept up in it. You kind of—it's like it's musty, even though you can't really smell it. It starts to nag at you a little bit. You want to like step onto the balcony at least get a breath of fresh air. But no, we stay for the most part here in this just little tiny room, which I think is really fascinating. But Matt, let's talk about one of the big sequences in this film, and it's this—this um, this chicken debacle, so, so to speak.
2: Across the valley, the church bells were ringing. And in the yard, Philip was doing likewise to the necks of two or three chickens. Oh, dear. It was a task he usually performed very competently. But on this particular morning, his touch was perhaps a a trifle too delicate. Because one of the subjects for our dinner table suddenly rebelled. Like Lazarus, he rose— That's a lie! Philip.
1: So this is pretty fascinating to me. This is, again, harkening back to the Leopold and Loeb, so to speak— ratting out your fellow compatriot, your your partner, your your lover potentially, uh, with like acts of violence, um, you know the strangling of, of of these chickens, which is probably not the way you go about doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's ver- it's very perverse, so to speak. And you know, Philip's very shaken, and, and you know Farley Granger's performance in this film is. He's so nervous the entire time. I don't think there's a shot of him where he's like not like either shaking or like looks pale in the face or just, or he just looks normal. Like, like he's having a good time. He looks physically disturbed the entire film
0: on the cusp of breakdown
1: the whole film. Yeah. Just ready to just, we killed the guy. He's in the, he's in, the, he's, he's, he's in there.
0: <laughs> there's this serendipitous thing that keeps happening to me through you. Okay. We talk during the week, whether it be text or just phone call, and certain subjects come up. Sure. And I felt like a few weeks ago, the subject and the word gimmick came up. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be quite relevant to the films we were talking about during the time as gimmicky. Oh, yeah. So last night, another word came up when we were talking about Feige and Marvel, mm-hmm. and it was ego. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's what Brandon is exercising at nauseum this entire film, This in this tight little room. I don't know if there was any more space for him and the guests because his ego took up the rest of the space that he wasn't using. The only
1: thing he's missing is like a pedestal and a microphone. Right. Yeah.
0: And there almost is a pedestal, and I'm so glad you said, no, we spent too much time together. (laughs) I have something on that too. Okay. Him using that strange story about his, I'm going to say it, his lover choking these chickens. Mm -hmm. Is so loaded. Yeah. Again, there's a lot of colloquialisms for, you know, masturbation. <laughs> choke choke oh, the chicken. I mean, oh yeah, exactly. We're, right. Yeah, yeah. And it rose again mm-hmm. to be choked. I mean, yeah. Okay, so that's the sort of sophomoreic take on this, yeah. and that's. But in the context of what Hitchcock used to do when he was around, yeah, with challenging some social norms, it's maybe it's not. Mm-hmm. The other thing, though is he's just making fun of him. Mm-hmm. And what's weird to me is from the beginning of the film, we have already established that Brandon has dominance over Philip. Mm-hmm. He just basically tells him, stop acting like such a baby, get it together, have a drink and chill out. Yeah. At one point, he even kind of slaps him. Like I said, I wasn't going to curse on the podcast anymore, so I can't say it, But yeah. but B slaps him.
1: Bitch slaps him. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. To keep my resolution intact. <laughs> Although I broke it, huh? You broke it last uh, oh, on, the, it. on the shot. All right, I get I get some practice. <laughs> Daggon. You're turning into Jimmy Stewart over there. I am. <laughs> I want to be Cary Grant, though. Um,
0: anyway, he he's exercising his dominance in a way here that's a mistake. Because mm-hmm. this is going to send Philip to a heightened state, which was already pretty elevated. Yeah. This dude's hanging on by, I, I don't even, oh.
1: Not even a whisper, (laughs) a a tiny thread holding him together. Yeah.
0: And him mocking him in front of everybody is showing his superior position, but it's going to send Philip to a a state that basically undoes the whole thing. Sure. Yeah. So ego is a lot of what Brandon's about here. It's also to very egotistical to just sort of say like, I know better and I can determine what people in this room, or what people in society, are worth living, and which ones aren't, and I've laid the claim of not you, David, through X, Y, and Z, and you're just not
1: smart enough. But also to tack onto the ego, like here's this kind of classy dinner party we're trying to have, and let me just tell this like fucked up story about like choking out some chickens. Like, okay, what the hell? Like, yeah, yeah. he's he's mentally ill. Much like the characters in vertical last week.
0: I think <laughs> we should invite Salmenio as Plato mm. from Rebel Without a Cause to no, yeah. this party oh, that, because he drowned those puppies and we could have a whole screwed up let's kill animals sort of version of this. Mm-hmm. And oh, that would be
1: a great film to talk about too.
0: Rebel. hmm Yeah, maybe someday. It's one of my favorites. Just a teenage angst cast. Yep. Cask.
1: Yeah, there you go. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, it's a perfect segue. So let's kind of get right into it. So they're having like various conversations as they're milling about eating chicken and no one's really eating it yeah weird huh Yeah, exactly but we do get onto this whole notion of Nietzsche and the Superman so let's kind of run with that for a little bit because this is kind of Brandon's whole moniker in a nutshell and what he's learned from Rupert through his classes is this kind of this superior being aspect that I am better I have shown in the opening bit that I am better than David and because he we are better it's almost that kind of Darwinism um, kind of mentality of survival of the fittest, and you know David couldn't cope, so he had to go. Type of a thing. This, does, a real, this is a really philosophical heavy episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like it. That's why I but really, really liked this film. But it's, this time. it's it's loaded in an 80 minute runtime, and, and that's what's impressive about it.
0: You said that, mm-hmm. and I struggled with that a little bit. Yeah, because I don't know if that was um, enough for people to. M- like, want to watch the movie. Sure. There isn't a lot of action in this film. So if you're not going to delve into the philosophical elements of it, it's probably going to be lost on you. Yeah. Like I said earlier, Dahl is Zarathustra, and that is the narrator or the decider of who's worthy and who isn't in the Nietzsche-Ubermensch uh, tropes story. 37 minutes into the movie. hmm That's where we start this and we begin this discussion in the act of murder and i think the quote which i wrote down is uh it's to be determined by the intellectual and this is doll speaking to the room yeah to be determined by the intellectual and cultural superiority that they are above and they are above the traditional moral concepts good and evil right and wrong were invented for the ordinary average man the inferior because he needs them so what doll is saying is these social constructs of there's white and there's black, there's light and there's dark, mm-hmm. there's good and there's evil, those are for the simple. And they're to be decided and adjudicated on by the elevated, such as the three people we talk about, me, Rupert, and and Philip, mm-hmm. Brandon, Philip, and Rupert, are the three that are worthy. Oh. And you think at first, okay, this is just one of those sort of philosophical discussions that people have because they're at a party and they've had a few drinks. But you come to find that even when the conversation becomes off-putting to David Kentley's dad.
1: Let me just tell you real quick. He
0: doubles down on it. He doesn't even back away. He puts his dad on blast and says,
1: well, you're not one of them. So there it is. Let me just say I would have walked out on this conversation. I'm going over to the cheese platter for this one. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, these people are so heady and, and kind of disconnected, so to speak, too.
0: And there's an admission in this, too. Brendan admits yeah. that he would hang all of the incompetents yep. as they are fools, and there are far too many of them mm-hmm. in the world. And he ha- he didn't really hang him, but he mo- they mostly did hang David to start the movie off. Brendan's not just talking shit here. Oh, yeah. Dang it. Brendan's not just talking stuff here. <laughs> I can have hell and damn, right? <laughs> Sure. Okay. Can you give me those two? All right. Brandon's talking stuff here. Smack. <laughs> You're
1: dying. Yeah. Go ahead. All right. Go. Let me. This is fascinating that you kind of brought this up because I know this isn't the Shadow of the Doubt podcast, but you know this might be a, a similar thing that comes up in Hitchcock's films. You know, this kind of talking and overzealousness with murder. And if you remember Hume Cronin, Hume Cronin. Our, our bro, our boy Hume Cronin, and the guardian angel from It's a Wonderful Life. Constantly coming to dinner and talking about here's how I would kill this person and mm-hmm. I, I well you'd never get away with that because this is I'd kill you this way and they'd never find you right. but then we get that great sequence at the table with Uncle Charlie Joseph Cotton and he's having the same conversation but he's talking about widows this time yeah. and you know that all they do is they take your, your your money into this and that and what are they good for and he kind of looks at this pretty screen.
0: good Joseph Cotton there <laughs> Dropped that a drop that a level and guts yeah very good.
1: But uh, he essentially says the same thing, and um, Teresa Wright says, "Who are you to decide?" And are like, "Are like, why are they worth it?" Or they're having the same conversation that they're having here right now. So this is interesting that Hitchcock brings this up because, to me today, there's you know, you know, we do a film podcast, but to me, a true crime podcast, they're they're hugely popular, and I think it speaks to people's fascinations with this topic of. murder and death and the unsolved nature of crime, but not wanting to go too far into the deep end with it. You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Hitchcock likes this commentary because it happens in suspicion too. Mm Do you remember the dinner table scene in Mm -hmm. suspicion with the murder writer? Oh yeah. And the different ways that you could pull one off and get away with this, Cary Grant. Yeah. uh, And John Fontaine. Yep. Man, he really, so he's getting to make the movie that he's always wanted to make up to this point oh yeah can i ask you a question because i know you're a huge fan of rear window go ahead is this the more black version of rear window black and so far darker
1: like color no
0: no i mean story-wise like oh Window yeah. windows rear window and it's kind T- of hollywood-ish so, if you will. so tone isn't this the darker version of rear window i think a little bit you know i think le- guy in the box that's buried like dead yeah and Rear, then the moral compass that's in question.
1: Yeah, I, 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 could, I could go with that. Rear Window succeeds in, you know, the investigatory element of it all. This kind of, we need to find this, we need to go this, we need to do X, Y, and Z. We need to w- wait till Thorwald's left his apartment. We need to, we're going to send the dog, or they killed the dog, or this and that. All, all that kind of thing. Here, it's pretty... It's pretty skin and bones uh type of investigation. It's kind of done through, like you said, if we're gonna have this film in sequence, the dialogue has to be really good. And that's how we get it here.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think you're on a roll. Keep going.
1: To me, one of my favorite characters in this entire film is actually the maid. Because the maid uh comes so close to blowing uh the whole situation for, for these characters without actually doing it. And in this really great scene here.
2: Oh, what was so different today? Well, that wasn't. Mr. Brandon was in the maddest rush for me to clean up and get the table set. And, oh, it looked so lovely. But then when I was whisking out to do the shopping, he suddenly told me to take the whole afternoon for it. The whole afternoon, after that mad rush in the morning. Did he say why? No, just a whim, I suppose. But when I came back, he and Mr. Philip were going at it hammer and toss.
1: So yeah, she's kind of you know she's giving the other players kind of like the behind the scenes like how are Philip and Brandon to know that they're made? Um, bless her heart uh, is kind of just off in the corner talking to Rupert, this guy that's already kind of on to them based on how they've been acting all night, like a bunch of psychos. Uh, that she's gonna say that, and that's just gonna be yet another kind of nail in the coffin for their situation. That like, why would she? Why would they make her leave her? The afternoon. Why would they, um, you know, be in such a tiff when they get back? You know, you know what I mean. It's it's really great. But then she's also the component for this next sequence here that I think is just done fabulously by Hitchcock.
2: I hope so. i uh, hate to throw a damper, but if David's at home, I should think he'd be calling instead of Mrs. Kentley. Wouldn't you say so, Brandon? I wouldn't know. David I remember was very polite as well as very punctual. He hasn't changed. Of course, if he's not at home. Where could he be? Don't ask me. I don't know.
1: So what you don't see in that little sound bite there is the maid is actually cleaning up. And she's taking the candelabras and the little kind of doily uh, place setter and putting everything away. And no one's... I think watching her because they're all, at this point, they're at uh, maybe DEFCON 4 with Brandon and trying to, or, or with uh, with David, trying to kind of figure out where he is. He's not answering uh, calls. His mother doesn't know where he is. His girlfriend doesn't know. They're getting a little worried. So they're not paying attention to what the maid's doing as she's literally kind of like cleaning off the tomb and about ready to open it when Brandon kind of comes in at the last thing. He's like, oh, no, we can take care of this later. You can come in tomorrow to do this. And it's all done in one shot. We're not watching the character speak. We're watching her her actions. And again, talk about the suspense and the bomb in the room that you set up so brilliantly in the flight. This is masterful. This is what Hitchcock is just so good at as a filmmaker.
0: All of that conversation that's happening that you just played is off screen. Mm-hmm. Well Or if not, some of it is. Mm-hmm. What he does... What's very cool in this scene for me is we're focused on the chest, the sacrificial altar. I think Brendan almost he short, says that. short of that calls it. He that, definitely he? does the sacrificial dinner or the,
2: the all that bit. You have it, and I'm sure you wouldn't want the poor old man to have to get down on his knees to see them. Well, I think it looks downright peculiar. Peculiar, very, particularly those candlesticks. They don't belong there at all. Well, on the contrary, I think they suggest a a, a ceremonial altar.
0: Exactly. God, is this board freaking awesome or yeah, what? Yeah, it's just – Jesse it, it, is mastering the board, Ryan <laughs> Nation, and you can tell today.
1: It's just going to explicate our points that much more. <laughs>
0: the fact that you just had that, we didn't – that that was completely off the cuff, everybody. There you go. That's just being in simpatico relationship with each other. Hold on, though. Yeah. Edith Evanson plays Miss Wilson. Yes. Uh, I know it's 10 years too early. Mm-hmm. But if I had a time machine and I could do this movie at the same time, I want this part to be played by Barbara Bel Geddes. Oh, wow. Because we come to find out earlier, Mm -hmm. and this is one of the other really important parts of Hitchcock films, is he makes the side stories, the B stories matter.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: We come to find out the maid, Miss Wilson, is sort of harboring a little flame for Jimmy Stewart.
1: Rupert, yeah. She
0: likes Rupert. Mm -hmm. We all like Rupert, but she really likes Rupert. So whether it's... The images in rear window of the apartments that really are not the main story. Oh, yeah. Or whether it's Brandon showing his dominance over the lesser few by putting really difficult people that have soured relationships in the same room together. And I'm specifically speaking about Joan Chandler as Janet and oh, God, God, Douglas
1: Dick is Kenneth, who were... God bless Joan Chandler. God,
0: God bless to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. God she, bless she, Joan Chandler. She came Chandler. on the
1: screen last night, and I was like, oh, man. Like, And she's kind of funny in this movie. Oh yeah, definitely.
0: But they are exes, and Joan Chandler's character, Janet, has just left Kenneth recently to go be with the now recently deceased... David. David. Mm-hmm. And, boy, Brandon is just celebrating the awkwardness of that relationship and it just again furthers his dominant position is he can watch all of the lesser few struggle yeah and he will sit in judgment on the throne and there is a throne in this movie mm-hmm. the throne is that weird by the way we'll get to the red and green too at the end uh, yeah that weird semi paisley green chair that's next to the bar mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's a really big moment that I hope we get to talk about. Well, we'll just I right. hope we get to talk about it. Well, it's, it right. it's a little bit ahead of where we are. Okay, But that throne or that chair serves as the throne for Ubermensch in this mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. And Stuart is the first one to take it. And he even at the moment when he sits in it, this is his return after he's left and come back. Even is has his attendance there mm-hmm. by his side. Yes. Um Brandon and Jimmy Stewart, like I've said earlier, are both the sword sharpeners for each. This is the Riddler and Batman at their oh, finest. Yeah, definitely. The cat and mouse, and, and Granger even kind of freaks out and says, cat and mouse, cat yeah. and mouse, and yeah. breaks the second <laughs> glass in the same dinner party. He's destroyed a whole set of crystal. He's not he, getting his he, hands on those rye glasses. Oh, he's no, eight. yeah,
1: he's out of control. He, he is out of control. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah. That poor guy's so unhinged the whole film. Well, I don't know how Brandon like saw him, and then was just like, I'm going to do a crime with this guy. He had to have seen how, like, just how emotionally he... He wouldn't be able to handle something like this. Jesus.
0: Right. <laughs> or his, or he has such faith in his puppeteering that his strings can I even can, control his freaking out lover. I can make it work. Yeah. After mm-hmm. this death. Mm-hmm. Brandon is a really good Hitchcock villain, Jesse. Mm-hmm. I, I hadn't thought about this until today, but if we were to do a ranking of best Hitchcock villains, he's good. he'd make the top five for me. Mm-hmm. He's such a bastard. That's not a curse <clears throat> word. Okay. So he you just get, didn't know his father. You
1: get bastard damn in hell. Yes. I'll say all the others. Thank you. <laughs>
0: So if we're going to play out this New Year's resolution thing that I'm flying soul on, two things have to happen. You have to come up with one before this is too far gone. Okay. And we need to put a jar out here. Okay. And every time the resolution is broken, something needs to go in there like money-wise. Okay. Quarter, 50 cents, whatever it is. And at the end of 2020... Yeah. All of that money goes to pay for whatever bottle it gets and we have to polish it off. Okay. So if it's $22, you and me are buying a $22 bottle of bourbon.
1: All right. That sounds good.
0: That could be good or it could be, it might incentivize. (laughs) (laughs) If it gets like $20, it might incentivize you or I to start cursing or doing whatever you're going to do more so that we get to a good
1: bottle. There you go. What do you think? The Pappy Van Winkle yeah what do you think <laughs> there you go we'll, we'll do it i'll come up with one all
0: right we'll come up all right beautiful excellent so back let's, to the movie let's set stop the, getting me sidetracked
1: let's set the stage for the final sequence here so everyone kind of leaves you know they're kind of worried about david trying to find out where he's at and you know they leave and it's just it's just a philip and and, and brandon here kind of you know kind of sifting through kind of the aftermath and they're like hey we it, it, kind of a moment on high for brandon a little bit he's Gotten away with it, and he, everyone's gone. We had this dinner; they didn't know the body was in this chest the whole time. But oh no, here comes Jimmy Stewart Rupert one more time, and he's he's kind of got it all figured out at at this point. Um, why don't you run run for this with this for a little bit, and kind of this this final confrontation because it's it's pretty good.
0: Brennan's really excited that he's gotten away with it. He is the winner. He's ready to take the mantle of the most worthy of determining. Life or death, because he has beaten his his iconic teacher. He's gotten away with it. Clearly, he is an elevated state compared to everybody else. Yeah. And he basically tells Philip, okay, you don't have to keep it together anymore, man. Start pounding, because I get it. Yeah. Right? Good job. And now we can celebrate. Phone rings. Here comes Jimmy Stewart back in, because he claims that he has forgotten his cigarette case. Jimmy Stewart's been on to them for a while. Mm-hmm. And I think the first real clear moment of Jimmy Stewart being akin or aware of this is that weird, bizarre conversation that he has with Philip at the piano. Yeah, yeah. About the chicken strangulation. Man, mm-hmm. uh, that I had to watch that a couple times. So that is just so weird. Mm-hmm. It's just such a bizarre conversation that he knows when he's lying and what really happened, and. Basically, he's trying to get Philip to come clean. Jimmy Stewart's in full detective mode, Mm -hmm. and the lights of interrogation are shining brightly on Philip. Insofar, and I mean that specifically, because back to the light and dark imagery, Mm -hmm. Stewart turns on the lamp at the piano, Mm -hmm. shining the light. Mm -hmm. This puts him in the position of goodness, or if we're going to play with the Zoroastrianism... Badness? Nietzsche, (laughs) (laughs) Nietzsche (laughs) role, in the position of a hero Mazda, which is the, the... the, the spiritual embodiment of goodness. Mm-hmm.
1: Now you set it up really nice. He he, he says he's forgotten his cigarette, cigarette case, case, but he hasn't. He hasn't. So what he does is he comes up to the to kind of where the bookcase, where the body is, and he kind of slyly sets it behind some books and kind of looks about, because he wants one more opportunity to really kind of put the final nail in the coffin. And as he kind of finds it, he kind of just, he starts just going off on them. It's
0: funny because he sits down in that chair that we were talking about that, for me, is the throne of superiority, rope's throne of superiority, and just kind of invites himself to stay for a while.
1: And at the same time, you know, I don't know. is this is this Brandon's apartment? Do you imagine? Is, it feels like it to ok. Me. yeah, I don't know who his realtor is and why he would he must have not taken him there during during at night because. He's got this bre- red and green neon just flashing into his windows. Like, yeah, same with, like, last week with Kim Novak and this kind of green neon, like... Hitchcock what, doesn't even know what that means to himself yet, but I know he
0: likes it. Exactly. Do you, I don't think he's mastered the red and green because we don't get to the mastery of that till the passion and the, the past that it plays out in, in, in Vertigo. vertigo. Mm-hmm. But he likes those colors. Well,
1: it's almost police siren-like, so to speak.
0: Okay, well said. Yeah. Sure. So uh i think brandon asked jimmy stewart rupert one point can i pour you a short one he says no you can pour me a a long one yeah so he's letting these boys know that he's going to stay there maybe so long as it might take until he sees philip off and we skipped over all that Mm -hmm. but this party (coughs) is under the guise of two things number one for david's dad to come get some old rare edition first edition books yeah and secondly the going away party For Philip, who's been given this really cool opportunity to perform at some very ritzy piano recital place, and he's gonna go off to Brandon's grandma's house in Canada or something (laughs) and practice for two weeks. Yes. So that, why not throw a party? Exactly. Yeah. You were right earlier, though. No one, nobody wants to go to this party except these weirdos that they've invited to this one. That's
1: a total chore.
0: Looks awful. Mm -hmm. And so now everybody's left, and like you said, Stewart's come back Mm -hmm. and he's just decided to sit down and something else has changed now. And that's John Dahl, Brandon, Mm -hmm. won't take his hand out of his pocket because Dahl's got a gun in that pocket. Now, this is set up, interestingly, because the last time we've seen the rope was on this clumsily and, and rightly so described this clumsily packaging element for the books that David Kentley's dad is going to take home that were the reason they threw the party to begin with.
1: Taking home his son's murder weapon.
0: To take, yeah. And the, John Dahl, man. Yeah. Such a <laughs>
1: a Bastard. Me-
0: okay, okay, such a bastard. Yeah. Well, what's in John Dahl's pocket, what's in Brandon's pocket is the gun, but mm. what's in Rupert's pocket, Stuart's pocket is the rope. Mm-hmm. So we have the reveal of the murder weapon. Mm -hmm. And there is some cat and mouse back and forth between Stewart and doll and Stewart's trying at everything to fence with him and fend off Stewart's accusations and detective work. But you can tell he's losing ground mightily. And for me, the moment that really showed Jimmy Stewart had ascended to the position of true Ubermensch. Mm -hmm truly taking on the role of a hero Mazda. Mm-hmm. And we, like I said earlier, we have to decide who's gonna be what roles, who's gonna be yeah. the narrator, who's gonna be the good, who's gonna be the bad. It turns out that when you look back at this, the narrator in that triumvirate, as defined by Zora, Astrianism, and Nietzsche, is Philip has been the narrator, mm-hmm. and that Brandon is Ingram Manu, that's the devil element, the dark side, yeah. and Stuart, obviously, Is the light, Ahira Mazda. And he sits in that chair that we talked about, and he's got his two servants Mm -hmm. at his side waiting on him literally hand and foot. His Mm -hmm. leg is crossed, his foot's wielding them off, and they are handing him things. Mm -hmm. We've seen who eventually has proven themselves to be most worthy, and it's not John Dahl. (laughs) No, exactly. The bad guy loses. Exactly.
1: And to me, it always kind of comes to a head when, when Brandon was like, we thought maybe you would have liked to have joined us so to speak and he's like i would never and this is when he goes into his whole philosophical spiel about you know what i mentioned earlier that's something he's always enjoyed teaching and discussing but he would never for one minute think that i would be a part of this
2: by what right did you dare decide that that boy in there was inferior and therefore could be killed did you think you were god brandon is that what you thought when you choked the life out of him? Is that what you thought when you served food from his grave? Well, I don't know what you thought or what you are, but I know what you've done. You've murdered.
1: This is masterfully performed by, by Jimmy Stewart as well. He totally takes control of the scene. And then <clears throat> he's like, he's like, you guys aren't getting away with this. So then he goes to the, the kind of the bay window and fires three shots into the night sky to kind of just alert, you know, whoever might that, you know, there's been a shooting and we'll kind of see if the authorities arrive. And I like that we like that we just kind of it's all auditory. It's all audio. The people talking on the street. Oh, it came from up there. And then we get the the kind of the, the final kind of sound that leads us out into into credits, which is just police sirens.
0: There's one more interesting thing that occurred to me in this. So the point when Rupert sits in the chair is like an hour and five minutes, and I think the bit you played is like 108. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's 110. We're just about at the end. Almost there. After uh, Jimmy Stewart goes through that bit that he heard mm-hmm. that you played, mm-hmm. he essentially says, who do you think you are? Yeah. And then he starts to do that bit that we that I spoke about earlier with Hitchcock. So like Hitchcock loves to challenge the morality of Stewart as the righteous. Yeah. Okay, he was the righteous teacher full of theory and intellect, and that in the hands of Brandon has been bastardized and used against him. So I'm not trying to say that Jimmy Stewart is responsible for the death of David, but it does give one pause insofar as when you have that discussion and people are listening to you and going to church on your sermon, Yeah, does Jimmy Stewart have an element of responsibility in this. And according to Hitchcock and the way he uses him, I would say yes. Oh, yeah. And it works because of Stewart's familiar folksy charm. Yeah. He's, like I said, the everyman protagonist. Mm -hmm. And doggone it, if it's not Scotty Scotty and Vertigo, or in this, look at you laughing at me.
1: Doggone it.
0: Horse feathers. (laughs) Daggummit, G willikers. exactly. (laughs) We see that lead punished for... Man, the smallest lack of character that works so good in Jimmy Stewart. I I, I think I mentioned last week that Grant was my favorite Hitchcock mm-hmm. lead. I'm I'm hedging those bets, Jesse. Yeah. I think he was able to I like Grant's stuff mostly, although to yeah. catch a thief is terrible. <clears throat> yeah but he's able to do more with Stewart because I just think the range for what Hitchcock looked for in that every man is greater with Stewart. Well, I
1: think he's able to take Stewart's morality and you know, we talked about how he's he's this high ranking military officer and he's just a well-natured kind of good man in real life to kind of take those sensibilities and totally turn them on their head in his, the films he was in with him is truly remarkable.
0: I found an interesting thing that Stewart had to say about Hitchcock and he said, he gave very little direction, especially to me, about the only thing he ever said is, "Jimmy, that scene is tired," and Stewart had this admission that he knew exactly what Hitchcock meant because he recognized his folksy charm that I'm talking about could sometimes come across as sleepy yeah. and maybe indifferent or just lazy. So he said that when Hitchcock told him that scene was hired, that he knew was tired. Sorry, he knew exactly what that meant, and he went back and fixed it. Um, one last twist. Okay. Jimmy Stewart has just finished undressing Brandon mm-hmm. over the moral superiority uh, throne that he wrongly sat upon when it should have been his. When it should have been? Uh, I almost said Ferguson. Yikes! Yeah. Scotty Ferguson. That's Rupert. It. Rupert. Yeah. And then, if you remember, right before he fires three shots, the thing that Jimmy Stewart does is he says, "And you're both going to die." Mm-hmm. That line is loaded because everything that he's just said, Brandon shouldn't have done. And he's acknowledged as a, as a failure of, of self-awareness and an over and over overinflated self ego. He does the exact same thing. So despite all this, he's still not perfect. Look, if you want to play it out per letter of the law, maybe one of them gets second degree and the other one gets manslaughter or maybe a fourth degree felony of like an accomplice neither one of these two guys is getting the electric chair and that's what he's talking about. But in that moment, Mm -hmm, Jesse, mm -hmm. he does exactly, and I don't know if this is him stamping, I am the only superior judge of character in this film. He could be. Or if we're admitting like, I'm still screwed up too. And like, I still haven't quite figured out this impossible riddle, but he says, you're both going to die. And then he fires three shots Mm -hmm. out the window to bring the cops in.
1: Well, let me just kind of say. I
0: love that. It. Yeah. Well, and then he's we'll, doing what he said
1: Brandon shouldn't do. Yeah.
0: Deciding and to me, deciding the, his life and death.
1: Yeah. The, the final shot, and we'll kind of kind of wrap this up is, you know, him sitting in, in the chair by the tomb, and as you know, Philip kind of plays. At a, taps. He, he's not even playing anything. It's just it's all it's all out of out of whack. Yeah. And uh, Brandon's pouring himself a drink. He looks Rupert, Jimmy Stewart, looks defeated. At this point as a character, uh, his morality, it looks like a man that I think you're totally 100 percent right when he does have some responsibility in this man's death that's in this tomb. And you you see the look of a defeated of a defeated man there amongst amongst his his students, which that's got to be even more tragic, too, that you built this precipice of education on these kids and they've done this with that.
0: We talk about with heroes a lot the difference between Superman and Batman. Mm-hmm. Superman is the flying embodiment of the flag, mm-hmm. truth, justice, yada yada yada. <clears throat> he's so righteous, it's almost off-putting. Yeah, but Batman, forces of the night, he's cave got a, he's little got a boy in hot pants that he's runs a, around in the cave. He's with got him. a
1: dark side to himself.
0: He's much more interesting. Mm-hmm. We've also spoken about grounding your villains in the right thought, but the wrong execution is a really great way to make Thanos matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It matters. Yeah, Just the execution sucks. Mm-hmm. This is that really interesting moment for the protagonist, the hero, because we realize not only is he exhausted, but he's still not perfect. Yeah. Because this incited it in Brandon and everything that he just berated him on. And who do you think you are? Mm-hmm. One man to judge another man. And it should be the goal of society. And as a collective, we come up with that. Then he goes against everything he just said by saying, And you're and you are both going to die. Mm-hmm. Bang, bang, bang. Three shots. Yeah. And I'm going to make sure that happens. Yeah. And so you get the hero. It's not Superman, but a little bit more like Batman with feet. I don't want to say of clay because that's too fragile, but a compromised morality. You could almost
1: them. call that an anti-hero I, too. Not little quite little, there, but it's close. Almost, yeah.
0: Yeah, we're about, what, 20 years, uh, 15 years too early to really kind of jump into anti-hero. But yeah, yeah. and that's it's better.
1: Yeah, and different for 1948. We're really seeing this kind of morality play taking place. So I think time now more than ever. Let's go ahead and rate rope. We have rock cut, well, call single barrel and top shelf. I'll go ahead and let you go first.
0: Prior to this viewing, I would have probably given it call plus plus plus. Today, it is for me top shelf. The cerebral element of this film is what sells it to me. Mm -hmm. I know that there's some experimental filmmaking that went into it, yeah, that's cool. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really, other than creating a real-time sort of feel, I don't know if it changes the viewing experience for me. But man, it it caused me, when I got done to do some pretty significant research on that discussion that hinges on who's worthy and who isn't. And oh, it led me down a path that I found myself putting a lot of work in, eagerly putting the work in mm-hmm. to want to understand the film on a higher level. And I think that's, for me, mm-hmm. what matters in film. If yeah. it leaves me with thought and a different or new take on some information that I was I was really familiar. I've seen this film 50 times, Jesse. Yeah. It's nothing new. No, exactly. I've seen it a lot. Yeah. You know, I didn't watch it in my twenties That had a twenties that had a lot of like nights that I fell asleep. <laughs> Mister <laughs> yes. Moral Compass over there, I okay. fell.
1: Asleep with, I fell asleep with a bag of chips in my.
0: In my Gee, I wonder what? what led
1: you to that.
0: <laughs> anyway, uh, that's that for me. Is everything that I want film to be when oh, I, yeah. when it's a film and not a movie.
1: You're not having those conversations after like Jumanji.
0: No, you're right. You know what I mean. Yeah. What you said about Jumanji last night or last week was perfect, dude. Yeah. It's a movie that I really like, but I couldn't tell you what happened. And you were right.
1: <laughs> I can't tell you what happened. I just it?
0: remember being <laughs> I liked like, it, happy,
1: yeah. watching it. And that's and that's a perfectly fine emotion to have when Absolutely. watching films. Yeah,
0: this is film, film, film. Mm-hmm. It's not better than Vertigo. That's a, yeah. that's in a class of top shelf that's reserved for the <clears throat> finest of the fine. Like oh, yeah. ten of all time. Yeah, but it it is on the starting five of his greatest works, mm-hmm. in my opinion. This okay. isn't even the bench six man of the year. Yeah. This is. If Vertigo's the point guard, this is like the
1: three. This okay. is like the shooting okay. the small yeah, four. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, I loved it. Excellent. Yeah. No, it is a it is a great viewing experience, and you know, it might be a little a little lost on you, but you know, I'm, I'm more technical too, and kind of the craft of it all. I think it's it's very ambitious to attempt any type of thinking in sequence, like any type of long take. But when you try and base a whole film off of this concept, that's that's ambition, and it's hard to do and. I think it lends another element to the film of exhaustion. This film can, I think, on the surface feel like it's like maybe an hour and 50 minutes when it's really only an hour and 20. I think it's because we don't cut away from the action. We're always watching something. We're always looking at something and trying to pick up on things. Um, Yeah, for me, I think I'm going to come in at 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 a single barrel, like single barrel plus. I think this is a great film. It's totally unique um his first technicolor film as we stated earlier so he's dabbling into color now and you know this is his first time working with james stewart this is one of you know, jimmy stewart's uh first roles after you know world war ii actually after he'd done his service uh based on a play it's very stage like we're going to talk about that here in a little bit but yeah it's totally in a, a unique category with i think a lot of his films that he did in the 40s and some in the 50s of just being really unique in their delivery and, you know, whether that's the body in the tomb and the uh, sequential takes, it's it's a really unique film. And, yeah, I'm going to go with the single barrel rating for this one. But it's a very good watch. It's a very it's a very quick watch. And, yeah, when, when characters say things like corrupt whiskey or ubermensch and they start saying, like, all these things, you, you pause and, like, you want to focus a little bit more on, like, why they're saying the things they are, because they're loaded. Like we said earlier, if something's gonna be done all in kind of one area, the dialogue has to be really great. And I think Hume Cronin adapted this play and really made us think about a lot of different philosophical tendencies that are really good. They're, they're, they're really It's really a well thought out story. I wonder
0: if in our journeys through film, you and I have missed a Jim and Hume Cronin, and I'm not trying to be stupid about this or cute, Do we not know enough about, like we kid all the time about. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Clive Owen and and, uh, The Invisible Man.
1: Oh, Claude Rains. There you go. Yep.
0: But I'm wondering, and I'm going to spend some time with this this week, to adapt it as smartly as Hume did, and then to have what you said in Shadow of a Doubt, Mm -hmm. that really funny dialogue about how to kill people. I'd kill you this way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering if maybe there's more that we're not really privy to and maybe we should look at a little bit.
1: Well, this is the perfect segue to our nightcap because the untapped Hume Cronin that I think nobody knows about and is one of my favorite Hitchcock films is actually a little film called Lifeboat. And it's a single location. The whole film takes place in a lifeboat, which wrap your head around that one. But he's one of the survivors of this kind of this uh this like cruise ship that got like attacked by these, you know, these German uh uh warships and they're kind of just floating aimlessly in the sea. And that's what the film is. So this got me thinking about Hitchcock and you know he did it with rope, he did it with that one, he did it kind of with rear window. Um single location films are, I think, really hard to do. And as we've talked about, I think on some of the other episodes on Rice Smile films, this is like the golden great white Buffalo unicorn idea of filmmaking. We want a one location and do it under $10 million, maybe less. Four would be better. Yeah. Four. And keep it super high concept. Yeah. And keep it. So, okay. Yeah. Like that's not impossible. Who doesn't? Exactly. That's not impossible. So Matt, my question to you is what is your favorite, uh, single location film?
0: There were two that I considered. The first one is devil. I like that movie. Mm-hmm. I-, I like it. Cause I wanted hit uh, Hitchcock. Look at that. Yeah. Freudial slip, huh? I don't want Shemylan to be good.
1: That was his curse though. It was the next Hitchcock.
0: Exactly. Mm -hmm. And trying to be him too much also. Mm -hmm. So that was one of them. And up until about 30 seconds ago, that was probably the one, but I'm not going to go with the movie that like nobody saw and wasn't highly reviewed. It's two girls and a guy. It's actually a Downey junior film. um, That has Heather Graham in it and Natasha Gregson Wagner and essentially what you're watching is Robert Downey Jr. get caught in the admission of this unfaithful relationship that he's been engaged with. It's mm-hmm. 1998. It's a dramedy. Um, there's some really cool dialogue that happens in that movie. Okay. And I think some interesting things are spoken. If any of the Richard Linkletter, Ethan Hawke, uh, before Sunrise, yeah, we're yeah. sort of singly located with a love triangle element in there. It's that level of smart. Sure. And that's a movie that comes on, and rarely do I get to see it from fade in to fade out, but there are moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a like I said, Heather Graham, and again, a huge Heather Graham fan mm-hmm. myself, mm-hmm. but I think I'm going to go with that today. Two girls and a guy. We're getting a little obscure here. Yeah but watching him try to struggle and maneuver and keep both of these two in tow when he know he's probably got to lose one of them to keep the other one Exactly. It's it's pretty good, man. That's okay. a pretty pretty smart well-written script. I've actually
1: never seen it, so I'm going to have to add it to my list. So okay. All right. Excellent. To me this is an interesting question because I think a lot of especially Rope was based on a stage play. I think a lot of films that are adapted from stage material, because a lot of that is single location, are able to transfer over to film relatively easily. My gut instinct would say to go with a film like 12 Angry Men. So good. Henry Fonda, Lee, so good. Lee J. Cobb, and the whole film's in a, in a juror uh, 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 deliberation room. Um, until kind of like the final sequence where they leave. But it, the action for the most part takes place right there and it's tight, it's tense. If you haven't seen Twelve Angry Men, um you need to see that film. That's the original. The original, yeah. Uh you need to see that. That should be on everyone's like must watch before they die list. It's a great film. But um, you know, Hitchcock did it well. I would almost want to pick rear window as well you know you're always in that apartment complex i always want to go onto the street and see what it looks like from the other perspective but we're never treated to that i think horde does this very well and it's really easy um i talk about the thing a lot i'm not going to pick it i'm actually going to pick about a film that i don't know a lot of people have seen Um, and apart from the opening sequence the majority of this film takes place single location i know you've seen this film matt this is the invitation imagine another horrific dinner party that we're going to where not only where you have to face your ex-wife but the trauma of losing a child with your ex-wife and then on top of that you're being pitched some weird cult experience to have with this couple talk about fucked up um but it's a it's a tense indie horror film that um really ratchets up the tension because i think we're in this house with these people the entire time and the last shot of the film i'll just call it the red lantern sequences Pretty remarkable. And I'm, I'm only picking them because I want more people to see see that film. Um, so 12 Angry Men slash The Invitation.
0: And those are good ones. Mm-hmm. Those are three really good films that not enough people have seen.
1: Yeah,
0: I'm not going to continue with The Invitation because I think you've described it. And I think me talking about it might take some of the edge out of it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to get too far into sure. the, the <clears throat> breakdown with that. Yeah, I guess that might not be a bad idea if this week's nightcap is to inspire rye nation to check out x y or z then let's do that by all
1: means yeah i've um we haven't
0: had homework in a few weeks so i've given you triple homework today. <laughs>
1: there you go two of them are from your <laughs> lesson plan <there. laughs> excellent um you know i like when people tell me just whether fans of the show or just you know people i know in my life that they went and checked something out that they had never seen before and they liked it i think i've mentioned before i think i get more enjoyment out of spreading the love of film then i probably get out of watching it don't get me wrong i love watching films Mm -hmm. but being able to show someone something like 12 angry men for the first time and just seeing how how they react to it to me that's everything like i love that i I wish i could do do that just show people movies for a living
0: (laughs) goes to the experience of watching it in the theater exactly so if you've seen it once and you're in the theater and you can Mm -hmm. watch the crowd watch yeah so you become jimmy stewart yeah then there's something cool about that—the shared experience of watching them react to the movie. No, exactly.
1: I think a, a couple months ago when we did "Wreck" here at my house, uh, and you had never seen it, like I had a blast doing that because I'm, I'm showing you something that—how's Matt going to react to this? Like, is he going to like get freaked out? Like the, the the tone of it? Like, what's he going to think of this? And I, re- I really like that. I really like doing that for people. So, do you ever want good recommendations like? Matt and I will will be there for you,
0: <laughs> Jonathan. I know you're listening, so you have three films to watch this week. Oh
1: shit! Yeah, excellent. I might see him today. I'll tell him if he hasn't listened yet. That's right. <laughs> excellent. No, yeah. So, cheers, Matt. This has been a great episode to talk about Rope. This kind of you know, it's it's a B list kind of Hitchcock, but maybe people haven't seen it, so get, go out and watch that too. Um, but next week we got a big one. So we're going to be talking from 1940, Rebecca. This is uh, Hitchcock's first foray foray into American cinema by way of David O. Selznick, classic film producer. RKO. RKO. Yeah, and um, this was uh, the I think the only uh, Hitchcock film that was ever kind of like really like awarded anything like pretty substantial. Winner of 1940s Best Picture. And that's a head scratcher, isn't it? Exactly. Wow. So um, this is an interesting uh, little film. Um, uh, I think we're going to do a Rye watch before this. we record this one with Lawrence Olivier and uh, Joan Fontaine. We're going to be uh, discussing Rebecca next week. So if you haven't seen it, uh, there's a great Criterion Blu-ray release of this that you can watch. But other than that, yeah, good luck
0: finding this film. Let's <laughs> see if I can't bring the poster that you gave me all those years ago.
1: Oh, yeah, that'd be great. It- I'll tell the story of that. Let's do that. Excellent. That sounds That sounds great. Until next week, Matt.
0: Till next week, Jesse.
1: Cheers. I got to get going. I got a dinner party tonight that I got to plan for. I got to go hide something. It's not a body, but I got to get this Christmas tree out of here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go home and do some research on Thomas Munzer and the Munzerites because I'm feeling the (laughs) religious philosophical angle. You didn't get
1: enough today. You need a little bit more. Just a touch more. Excellent. We'll see you all next week.
0: Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark.
1: Thank you for listening. To Rise Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, tune in, and leave us a comment at Rise Productions at gmail.com. Rope is property of Transatlantic Pictures, Warner Brothers Pictures, and Universal Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended.